Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. Ukraine has fallen into a constitutional crisis following a controversial decision from the country's constitutional court. This week, we look at President Zelensky's high-stakes response to this ruling, as well as the shenanigans happening inside the Chernobyl exclusion zone. This and more on Zakhrdonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. As we announced this week on our social media platforms, Ukraine's parliament has announced the winner of its competition to determine what Ukraine's new great coat of arms will be. The design uh, won out of a total 112 that were accepted into the competition, and it's not the first time that this design has won the competition. It previously won in 1997 uh, in one of Ukraine's previous attempts to determine what its great coat of arms would be. Now, Nathan, do you want to describe what the coat of arms looks like? Absolutely. So, in the middle, it has the um, Trezub within a shield. And then on the left-hand side, there's Yatim Mechil. And then on the right-hand side, there's the lion representing Halachina. Uh, above this, there's a banner with a Kozak. And then underneath, there is some Shinetsya there. So, a lot of different things there that represent Ukraina. What's interesting is that the constitution only specifies that the Trezub has to be in the middle. The rest of it's all up to whatever the design the designers choose. Yeah, but one of the things with this design is that the Trezub actually, it is in the middle, I guess, horizontally, but it actually has shifted position quite a bit compared to the kind of, I guess, previously accepted coat of arms, which was, you know... The unofficial of, one you're Yeah, the unofficial about? one, like the one that's kind of been the one that most people you know, would use. That, that one has sort of got this idea of a bit more balance from a design perspective. It's kind of centred, horizontally centred, Vertically, um, whereas yeah, what well, Nathan? I guess with this new one, there's a there's the Kazakh in a banner on the top, which kind of offsets the Trezum to be right down, sort of in, in the bottom. And I think generally, if you have a lower coat of arms, which is the official coat of arms, which is the Trezum on the blue shield, if that's going to be part of your greater coat of arms, surely that should be the center, the yeah. dead center aesthetically of the entire design. Which is probably why, from my perspective, from a design wise, it's not really. My preferred choice. My favorite quote about this, because this design has been quite controversial anyway, was from Yevromaidan Press. They said that this uh, this winning design is a mishmash of everything Ukrainian because it incorporates Svetei Mikhail, the lion, the Kozak, everything set together. All they're really missing is Volodymyr's crown and probably the Crimean Tatar like symbol, and you've got everything. <laughs> It kind of reminds me of like um, something you'd see, you know, how the Vatican, anytime it has like the coat of arms of a particular pope or a particular saint, they will kind of incorporate different elements from that person's life into it. Yeah. It kind of seems like they were going for that to try and put different things that represent Ukraina into it. Um, but yeah. And this brings us to the main question. So, we did a poll of our of our followers on Instagram and Facebook. And that poll was quite an interesting split. So, 44% approved of the new design, while 56% disagree. And I think that split kind of reflects a wider question, um, like facing or like in this element, does Ukraine actually need a great coat of arms? Because many people in Ukraine associate a great coat of arms as something that you have in a country where there's a monarchy, or it's like a federation, while because Ukraine's a unitary state where you know, all power is concentrated in the middle, does it actually need a great coat of arms? I think it does because it, it gives, um, it kind of gives like a more, uh, sort of like a more power structure 
when like you're officiating documents because you can have like the small trezor be everywhere and it'd be like one of the easier things to have around but then like the trezor sorry the the great coat of arms could be more like a an official document seal or something like that because it's already up in one of Zelensky's offices anyway but that's, the but old that's the, like the old one so um i think it's just it's more of like a not like a professional but more like a government use seal it, it's it's it would be useful for more formal proceedings like that's i guess what you're trying to say right like yeah the, for formal kind of you know documents or formal declarations or you know certificates or other areas where it makes sense you could use this more I guess representative, yeah, um, yeah, more symbolic trezor that does actually have representations of other symbols of Ukraine, not just the trident. So I think that's yeah. In saying that, though, um, for example, if you look to Latvia, they actually have three coat of arms. They have the great coat of arms, they have the middle coat of arms, and the lesser coat of arms. So they've gone even further, <laughs> uh, which I feel is quite medieval in a sense that you have like so many coat of arms. But yeah, so it's not just Ukraine that, you know, as a republic would have multiple coat of arms. There's many other countries that have it. So the only other thing with the design that I think, you know, if it's something that everyone wants because of those extra symbols being there, like Suti Mahil, like I think that's that's fine. I think what doesn't quite work from at least my humble opinion from a design side is the way that the colour is so different because of the white angel. Like almost it would be better if the lion for Halachina on the other side was then a gold outline with white in the in the middle of it or something just to balance out that color palette because there really is, is a lot more gold on this design because of the fact that there's all the banner ribbon and things above the trezub. Um, I think that could be something to consider. But I think the lack of kind of symmetry in terms of the color palette really doesn't make it feel like a national coat of arms. It feels more like, you know, maybe something that's, you know, like to represent a specific office or something. Yeah, but it, 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 I would expect to have a bit more symmetry, and I think the old design did. Since 1986, with the explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, a shadow economy has developed within the now-designated exclusion zone. Despite the area's health risks and the restrictions placed on the region, people have been logging trees for timber and charcoal, poaching fish and game, illegally mining amber, picking and selling irradiated berries and mushrooms, smuggling out irradiated scrap metal. So, this is pretty crazy that they're... Like, taking all of this out of the exclusion zone with the purpose of trying to profit off it. Really. Yeah, like, you'd think, like, some people got to be pretty desperate to go into, a, like, a nuclear disaster zone to pick mushrooms and berries for, like, consumption. Yeah, so, um, when looking into it a little further as to why this is the case, um, it looks as though, well, Al Jazeera was reporting on it, and it looks as though uh, a lot of it has to do with corruption. This is corruption um, by officials, by like officials who are supposed to be mon- uh, managing that exclusion zone, by police officers that are supposed to be enforcing it. And there's also entrepreneurs who are using uh, the villagers who still live in that area who are now largely starting to live in poverty. They're making use of them to carry out this, you know, this illegal smuggling and mining and, you know, the collection of berries. So, it's... It's it's very profitable, and that's probably why it's still being allowed to continue. Um, so there is a 
Ukrainian non-for-profit called Stop Corruption. And the head of that organization is a guy called Roman Bukala. And he said that Chernobyl has become a cesspool of corruption, a source of timber, scrap metal, berries, and everything that goes there. So it is rich with all of these um, resources, and that's why people are still going and collecting it, despite the fact that there is an exclusion zone, which is, let's face it, it's meant to stop the radiation from spreading, and then you have people taking scrap metal out of their irradiated scrap metal out of there to use for who knows what purposes building or they're selling off these berries which are you know obviously uh, radioactive which people are consuming and it's it's a massive problem so this was even brought up by the former director of the plant a guy called Serhii um Serhii Parashin and he wrote a letter to um then president Poroshenko uh, about the growing issue of marauders, as he called it, and the lack of management over that area. So, Poroshenko's reaction was that he changed the management of the zone, except that did very, very little to actually stop the smuggling that um, took place there. And even President Zelensky mentioned it last year. He stated that, unfortunately, the alienation zone is a symbol of corruption in Ukraine. So... What do you guys think about this shadow economy and the impact it's going to have on, you know, Ukraine and abroad? I think we should also highlight that there is a legal economy in Chernobyl, which is like mainly like tourism and like scientific research. And like there have been proposals to build like new sources of power generation there. And for a long time, the plant still operated as other reactors. Yeah, the last reactor shut down in in 2000. 2000, Yeah. Yeah. Considering it's been like uh, almost 20 years yeah. And this is like right next to the reactor as well. Um, but it's like crazy because the corruption problem has gotten so bad that I think you were telling um, Nathan before we started the podcast that they found a truck on the Ukrainian-Polish border carrying radioactive metal from Chernobyl. Yeah. So, this truck, this was back in 2016, a truck carrying 20 tons of copper nickel pipes was detained on the Ukrainian-Polish border and the cargo emitted radioactivity at 4.1 microsieverts per hour, which is almost 15 times above the permissible levels. So, this doesn't just affect Ukraina, this stuff's getting shipped outside of Ukraina. Uh, and that's just one that they've caught. So, who knows what the situation is like on the Belarusian border. Nathan, just have interest though. Is any of this, is this stuff being openly sold as though it's not from Chernobyl? Or what's, have you sort of found anything out about that side of things? No, nothing I could, I, I, when I was looking into it, I couldn't see much about who was purchasing it. Um, but there might be information out there. I, I guess what more what I mean is, you know, do people who are buying know that this stuff is cheaper because it's coming from Chernobyl or is it being sold as though it's just metal or just berries from any other region of Ukraine? Like, is the buyer actually aware? Well, I'd assume with the berries that, like, the people who would be buying it should have the assumption because in Ukraine, especially in summer, you'll see people sitting on the side of the road selling, like, mushrooms and berries and that kind of stuff. And if in your that region of... Kievska Oblast, like you probably shouldn't be buying anything from the from the wild. I think a lot of the people that are buying have no idea that this is from Chernobyl or like in the surrounding areas. I don't think I don't think you would willingly like willingly buy that type of stuff if you knew it was irradiated or so, like near near somewhere that was irradiated. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention is. Uh, there's a company that recently has released their own vodka from Chernobyl. So, they're called the Chernobyl Spirit Company and they've made the Atomic Vodka. So, this is made 
from rye that has grown within the react uh, within the zone, and they've also used the water from the area next to the yeah, within the zone. So it's all produced in the zone, and it is safe to drink. It is distilled. Uh, multiple times like you always do with vodka and most of the impurities are gone from this but it's quite interesting that someone's just gone around and it's like hey oh, what's a crazy thing i can make in chernobyl would you guys drink chernobyl vodka nope <laughs> yeah me neither i definitely will of course <laughs> <laughs> On the 28th of October, Ukraine's Constitutional Court overturned Article 3661 of Ukraine's Criminal Code. This effectively deprived the National Agency for Preventing Corruption of its powers. So the court's reasons behind this was that they deemed these powers to be unconstitutional, obviously, and it canc- they cancelled penalties for officials who lie on their official asset declarations. So if someone doesn't declare all of their... Um, assets before coming in, before becoming a public official, they have now removed any penalties that they uh, that they would have faced for you know committing that lie. Uh, so, in response, President Zelensky has proposed firing the entire Constitutional Court, and thus this has now exasperated the constitutional crisis that's happening in Ukraine. So, Andrei, what is the Constitutional Court? So, the Constitutional Court of Ukraine is the sole body of constitutional jurisdiction in Ukraine and it's enshrined by the uh, Ukrainian constitution and it was established in 1992. So, the decisions of the court are binding, final and cannot be appealed. So, so basically, like if I have a case and I want to take it to the Constitutional Court, I have to go through all the other courts first and then once the Constitutional Court decides, that's it. But your case would also have to be relevant to the constitution. So, if you had a criminal case, you couldn't appeal to the constitutional court. But but I think this is the big question, right? Because I think before the expansion of power that Andrei referenced in 2016, in terms of who can actually apply to the court, um, it was something that had to happen really initiated from the government to ask the question, which is allow a lot of our, if you look in the West, a lot of the constitutional or high courts, when they talk about matters Regarding constitutions, generally, it's either a reference judgment that's given by a requested by a government, or it's actually a matter of case law that gets escalated with that kind of question, similar to what we're talking about here. The only question I have, I guess, with all this is how vague does the link to constitutional law have to be for the appeal of a particular case for them to be able to hear it? If any individual or any company can now appeal after the Supreme Court, which is really should be the highest court for a normal case in Ukraine, you know, how, how easily will, will they interpret something as a question of constitutional law? Like how, how loose can the argument be? Like, you know, that oh, this particular decision is infringing on my freedom of, of speech, you know, you know, to actually, even though the case is nothing about that. Do you know what I mean? I think that's, well, that's the only question. Uh, in 2016, access to the constitutional court was significantly broadened. Uh, since then, all individuals and companies where there are grounds to claim that a final court judgment contradicts the constitution can file a complaint at the court. Prior to this, only the president, members of parliament had the right, and members of parliament had the right to appeal to the constitutional court. So, back to the individuals and companies, they can only apply um, a complaint 
only after all other remedies have been exhausted in the regular Ukrainian courts. Now, the, the court's rulings are mandatory for execution in Ukraine, are final and cannot be appealed like I mentioned before. Um, laws and other legal acts or the separate provisions that are deemed uncon- unconstitutional lose legal force. So, the court is comprised of 18 judges which are appointed equally between the President, the Parliament and the Congress of Judges. Now, to become a judge in the court, you need to have yeah, you need to be over the age of 40, have a higher legal education and professional experience of no less than 10 years, reside in Ukraine for the last 20 years, and be, and be proficient in the state language of Ukraine. So, Andre, what are some of the most notable judgments that the Constitutional Court has ruled to date, besides this controversial one? <laughs> so, there's been four famous rulings that they've... Um, that they've ruled on and decided on. So, the first one was in December 29th, 1999, where the court um, interpreted the constitution as unconditionally ruling out capital punishment. And that was quite surprising that it was not that long ago. I'm just interested. Oh, okay. So, Um, No, no, no. As in, was there actually people that were committed, were given the sentence of capital punishment previous to that? Yeah. In Ukraine um, since independence. That's what I'm curious of. No, okay. so Ukraine carried out its last execution in 1987, according to the Amnesty International. I thought they never killed anyone. They no, just they ruled had. it was unconstitutional. No, they had killed people. So, the next the next ruling was on November 14th, 2001. The court outruled the institution of Propeska. Do you want to explain that, Alexa, what it is? So, Propeska is this old Russian Empire, Soviet Union institution that basically tied people to their place of residence. And so, it it was built into the internal passport system of those, like, two countries. And Ukraine, like, therefore inherited it when it uh, gained its independence. And so, or, like, the system technically still vaguely exists in Ukraine. It's just in a very loose form. So, you can be, like, registered in Lviv, for example, but you could be living in Kharkiv. The only time you'd really see... An issue these days would be as if you came to vote because you can only vote where you're registered. So, this has proved to be kind of a major issue these days because a lot of people who have fled Donbass technically can't vote. So, Ukraine has to, I think, um, they have to like apply legislation that exempts them from this. But even like when I lived in Ukraine and I had my temporary residency permit, like I had to register where I was going to live. So, it was a very fun experience. I think most countries you have to register your place of address when you come into a country. Like when I lived in Canada, you obviously have to say where you're going to be living. But I think, um, you know, the idea of like, I think now in COVID times we've seen the idea of you know, restricted borders in Australia for the first time in 100 years. It gives you a bit of an impression of what it would be like to have ref- the freedom of movement restricted. But voter suppression like in Ukraine at the moment could be a high risk because of those issues, like you mentioned, around Donbass and the west, of, the rest of eastern Ukraine. Uh, the following ruling was on December 25, 2003, where the court allowed uh, Leonid Kuchma, the second president of Ukraine, to run for presidency for the third time. And Kuchma, uh, Kuchma chose not to rerun for election. So, in Ukraine's constitution, the president can only run uh, concurrently for two terms and then has to take a break before he can allow for a, a re-election. I thought it was only two terms. No, it's, so it's... Two terms max um, 
one after the other and then you need to so does that mean you could run two consecutive take a break two consecutive take a break yeah sort of like what putin did in okay, russia where he took that was, yeah. uh, tiny break but yeah well considering we've only had one president that's ever had two terms i don't think that's going to be an issue for a while yeah <laughs> And then the final one was October 1st, 2010, where the court determined the 2004 amendments to the Constitution of Ukraine unconstitutional and repealing them. While on, December, while on February 21st, 2014, Parliament passed a law that reinstated these uh, amendments back to the Constitution. So this is when the whole uh, Yanukovych changed the law, uh, changed the constitution and then it was reinstated back. Oh, okay. Because right. it, uh, it recreated the super presidency in Ukraine where the, pri- uh, where the president basically appointed everyone in government while under the current constitution, it's the Vrkhovna Rada. Uh, I think it's a good point just to sort of, it's probably something we should probably cover in another episode, but the semi-presidential system of government that exists in Ukraine is quite unusual because they have a prime minister and they have you know, a president's cabinet. So it's kind of like an amalgamation of what we see in like a Westminster government versus, say, the American government. And those powers obviously are at odds quite a bit. The closest country would be France, which also has a semi-presidential system. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I think a couple Eastern European countries have like a similar thing. Because I think Poland has a similar thing as well. And Lithuania. Probably. Yeah, so with this whole constitutional crisis... Um, so I know Zelensky because this whole thing's tied to the um, the anti-corruption, which is tied to their IMF funding. So and EU visa free access, which most Ukrainians see as like their biggest victory after Maidan, was that that you know they were accepted as you know not having to fill out these horrible visa applications to travel to Europe. Yeah, so I see why Zelensky wants to like overturn the court's uh, decision. But do you think he's going the right way about it by firing all of them and creating a you know, a second constitutional crisis at this time? No. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, he's going for quite the extreme and trying to just pretty much reset the whole constitutional court. So, besides Zelensky's proposal, there's also a proposal that was drafted by Ukraine's parliamentary speaker. And his proposal was to basically reinstate the legislation that the constitutional court uh, ruled invalid. However, th- this proposal itself is problematic because then the constitutional court would just rule it again as unconstitutional. So I think it all comes down to the heart of the matter. And even though their judgment is quite vague, it does sort of drill down into the whole aspect of separation of powers. And their argument was that the executive, which implements legislation, shouldn't be able to influence the judiciary and therefore a separate body should have been created to, like, verify the asset declaration of the judges. Yeah, and I think it goes back a little bit to some of the decisions that Andre just spoke about, that it's quite dangerous for Zelensky to kind of go to dismiss because it kind of shows that there's still this expectation from the president of Ukraine that the Constitutional Court of Ukraine will do the bidding of the president, the president which is obviously what happened in 2010. Um, well, and, and even and in 2019, yeah. when Zelensky got them to annul parliament early, even though there was only six months to go to the election. And, and for anyone who thinks that's not a, not a huge deal, I, I kind of would like to draw their attention to what's happened in the US where, you know, really, I guess, the, the, the check and balance that has kept... Um, the part, the heavy partisanship, you know, left or right, in check has been the legal system. 
being largely independent and still you know being facts based when there's a lot of alternative facts going around in the rest of society. So I think it's a it's quite dangerous you know, tinkering with these sort of things in these sort of extreme ways. And we should highlight that the decision to nullify the anti-corruption legislation wasn't unanimous. There were four judges that ruled against the decision and these judges were appointed during the uh, presidency of Petro Poroshenko under more more transparent systems. And so, you know, there is hope that, you know, the constitutional court can be reformed because they're only in there for nine Nine years, years, you said, Andre, and there's free vacancies at the moment. So with that, you know, you can work towards a majority of, you know, reform judges that can keep the court on track and fulfilling, you know, the will, like the spirit of the Ukrainian constitution, which is quite liberal in itself. I think you made a mistake by not pointing out that there were four that um, voted uh, against that decision because at the moment I would say they're his biggest allies on the court. And by saying he's trying to fire them as well, it's kind of like a, um, seems like a, a blind decision. And well, he I'd should say be promoting them, I think. I'd say that uh, if if what you're saying is that he should have only dismissed the ones that disagreed, I think that'd be even worse, even worse like for his image because then he's trying to make a favourable court for but himself. But I wouldn't say really. he doesn't have to dismiss them, but he can at least you know spotlight those ones who took what he thought was the right decision. I, d- I definitely think the dismissing is taking it, taking it too far, but he should at least point out that these are the four that, you know, voted in favour of this anti-corruption um, body and, you know, one wanted to keep their powers. But I, I, I don't know, for some reason, he seems to constantly take, like, extreme... extreme me- yeah. yeah, like, same thing with, like, when he was campaigning. He's going to lock up Poroshenko and put him on trial and stuff like that. It always seems to be go for the extreme. And- I, I, I hear what you're saying, Nathan. I, I think the thing we have to remember, though, is um, the stakes are a lot higher in Ukraine at the moment than what we would expect of Australia and other places, you know, like... It is a country that's in the war, it has an aggressor on its doorstep that's inside of its backyard, inside of its our front yard, arguably as well. They're deep into eastern Ukraine. Um, yeah, these are there's there's things that have happened that have upturned normal society, and I think these are the things that you know kind of require, obviously, you know, drastic people, measures. You know, maybe I'm not saying drastic measures. I think these are the sort of things that require you know, serious responses. And sometimes people can be over, maybe too heavy-handed with what the response should be. Um, but, um, you know, I think there's, there is some context there that we have to be respectful of in terms of, you know, fighting for freedom when it feels like it's under threat. Yeah, and this decision was met with a lot of protests. So in the hours after the decision became public, there were huge protests outside the Constitutional Court of Ukraine. And... Um, you know, society's been quite vocal in its dissatisfaction in the ruling, which, you know, it's like, you know, sort of brings into mind, like, some of the decisions in the US, which have caused, like, you know, street celebrations to occur. Well, I think in the end, if he does end up fulfilling this threat, um, it would set a dangerous precedent because, you know, presidents in the future will also be able to take on this, you know, heavy-handed approach um, going forward. So, Hopefully it doesn't play out the way he wants it to in terms of the firing, but I guess we'll see what happens. In the news this week, coronavirus strikes again in Ukraine as the chairman of the 
Majlis of the Crimean Tatar people, Refat Chubarov, has tested positive for COVID-19. November 21st marked the Day of Dignity and Freedom in Ukraine. This day commemorated both the Orange and Euromaidan revolutions. A prayer service was held on the Alley of the Heavenly Hundred Heroes in Kyiv for those who have died for the independence of Ukraine. Saturday the 28th of November was Holodomor Memorial Day. On this day at 4pm, a minute silence was observed across Ukraine and candles were lit in front of windows across the country. To date, besides Ukraine, 33 other countries also recognize the Holodomor as a genocide, with another five recognizing it as a criminal act against the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian Religious Freedom Support Act has been submitted to the US Senate after passing the House of Representatives. If passed, the act would require the US President to take action against Russian officials who propagate violence against religious minorities in the Russian-occupied Ukrainian territories. This bill expands upon the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UKLife Report content.